I don't get TikTok. I shouldn't be on TikTok. My brand shouldn't be on there. Blah, blah, blah. This is what I hear from people every single day. So many eyeballs are on there and it's not just 14-year-old kids lip-syncing anymore. TikTok has changed, TikTok is becoming one of the largest search engines and TikTok is where your current and your future audience is going to be. So, if your brand wants to know all about TikTok, I have some great news for you. Our friends at Antler Social are doing a full day TikTok session where they're going to tell you every single thing that they know in one day, you can note it down and then get back to your desk and use it to devastating effect. The TikTok First Agency Antler Social are hosting this bootcamp for hospitality, social media and marketing managers. If you're not there, your competitors will be there and you'll definitely get FOMO and regret it. Just to give you a flavour of the day, Antler will be going through WTF is TikTok, how on earth do you show up on TikTok, then getting straight into chatting all about influencers and paid promotion, then a healthy amount of time to ask every single question that you've ever wanted to know about TikTok. The experts will be there live in person and you'll be able to ask them. Get your tickets now. It's Tuesday the 23rd of May in Brixton, Studio Z and tickets are just £199. Don't miss the session. I'm going to be there. I cannot wait to see the Antler team in action and I think everyone that's going to go is going to fly on TikTok in the next year and see some great results for their business. Supersonic. 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 Welcome to Supersonic Hospitality Marketing with me, Mark McSee, where we meet the most interesting people in hospitality, marketing, business, and beyond to hear tips, tricks, and tales to help your brand boom. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity and serve guests better. Hey there, my name is Paul Barron. I'm the founder of I Am Donna. We are the restaurant chain on a mission to revolutionize the kebab. In 2016, we opened our first site in Leeds with massive ambitions to go global. But first, we needed a change. Being a chef, I've always been a bit skeptical about being pushed down the technological route. But what it's done for labor and customer service has completely changed the game for us. We partnered with Vita Mojo to introduce their all-in-one restaurant platform. We now take 100% of our orders digitally through kiosks, click and collect and delivery channels. We've waved goodbye to the manual processing of delivery orders as we now have all our delivery partners integrated through Vita Mojo. We only need to do one menu push when updating menus across all platforms. Orders from all channels come into one screen in the kitchen making the operation faster and more efficient. The throughput is four times faster and we've seen a 35% increase in ATV. Our partnership with Vita Mojo has transformed I am Donna. It's a massive part of our revolution. Find out more at vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. I'm about to reveal hospitality's best kept secret. HDI are a mind-blowing hospitality data insight provider working with over 50 different businesses from pubs and bars to casual dining, QSR, 
and coffee. Since 2017, they've led the way creating incredible insights from debit and credit card spending. If you want to know the customer profile and performance of every site on your street, which brands are performing best or where else your customers go, give HDI a shout. For mind-blowing hospitality data insights based on real credit card and debit card data, contact hello at hdinsights.com. That's hello at hdinsights.com. Hello, how are you doing today? I hope you're well. I've got a real cracker of an episode coming up for you today. I was lucky enough to be on a Zoom call the other week with my next guest, Professor Peter Jones. And I'll explain all the things he does in a wee minute. But just sometimes you're on a meeting with someone and you just think, I could listen to you all day. I was introduced to Professor Peter Jones through Robert at the Institute of Hospitality and it was to talk about, in the first instance, hospitality rising. But I really wish that we'd actually recorded the call that we had because the passion, the knowledge and also the foresight of all of the issues that we face in hospitality were just streaming out of Professor Peter It was really a joy to see, and as soon as he got extremely animated about the whole subject, I just thought we have to get Professor Peter on the show and basically just let him go for it. And sometimes the best guests are, I know I talk far too much, but the best guests are the ones that you just say a couple of things, a couple of wee questions or prompts, and they just go for it, much like Rory Sutherland in one of the past episodes. So Professor Peter has had a lifetime in hospitality and he's really had a wide and varied career. His introduction to hospitality was as an army officer and he was in the Army Catering Corps, then 10 years at Bournemouth University, heading up the School of Service Industries, which included hospitality. Then a hop, skip and a jump to the Katoomba region, I suppose, in Australia, Blue Mountains, hotel school, which I'm sure was a lot of fun. And we didn't even get to cover all these things when we were talking. So then he was appointed the project director for the Edge Foundation, which is the creation of developing and opening the UK's first hotel school. So really something to be proud of. It's a list as long as your arm, all of the things that the professor's doing now. But his current roles include Dean and Academic Director for eHotelier, advisor to the Board of International Association of Hotel Schools, chair of the Professional Review Panel for the Institute of Hospitality, hence the Robert Link, chair of the Crumbs Project, which sounds amazing, and we do talk about that in great depth, and it's really, really inspiring to hear about. The trustee of Savoy Educational Trust, and not only that, he's also heading up Wentworth Jones, which is a small consultancy company, And he's been doing some groundbreaking stuff in the learning sector at a new hotel school in Bangladesh. And he's also acting as an advisor at Kathmandu University in the development of an absolutely trailblazing Bachelor of Professional Hospitality. Last thing, he is on the review panel for the government of Lithuania and many, many more things. 
So I think you'll enjoy the episode. We really get deep into hospitality and the challenges we have in recruiting people and also some solutions about how we might get over that. And we dig deep into the Crumbs Project and the eHotelier Future Skills Report. So it gives me the most proper professor pleasure ever to introduce my next guest, who is Professor Peter Jones, who is many things, but including Dean at eHotelier, Chair of the Professional Review Panel at Institute of Hospitality, Chair of Crumbs Project, and as I say, so much more that we will talk about. Good afternoon, Peter. Hi, Mark. Good afternoon. Nice to uh, speak to you. <laughs> it's great to chat. And uh, I'm, I'm really admiring the mug that you've got there. Is that a nice Fillory and Bosch one? How did you know? The, yeah, it's so ergonomically beautiful. The Aston Martin of mugs. Absolutely. <laughs> nice. And uh, where in the world are you? I'm in Bournemouth. Oh, very good. Just along the coast, not too far. Not too yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. Nice. The weather oh. is probably much the same here as it is with you, I guess. Oh, it's been Windy. Rotten. Yeah. Pretty rotten. Mm. It's been bad. So fingers crossed for, for a nice weekend ahead. Um, uh, I doubt it, but there you go. <laughs> So as I say, I, I just enjoyed our conversation so much um, when we caught up and you were just really hitting so many of the nerves that I have around hospitality and what we can do to help it and, and you know, some of the challenges that it has. So I thought it'd just be such a great way to to document this by, um, you know, adding you to the podcast, squeezing you in. And uh, I think listeners will get so much out of it. Okay. Which yeah, is great. Good. So, um, just as a bit of an introduction then, because as I say, you've got a list as long as my arm of the things that you're doing. You're the busiest man in Europe. Um, but it would just be great to to nip through what you're doing right now and then a little bit on, you know, what, what got you there. Okay. Well, the things I'm doing now, you've mentioned some of them. So I chair Crumbs, which is a charity which provides hospitality, education and training to adults with learning and mental health difficulties. We're only small. We can only cope with 30 trainees at a time, but we have our own commercial kitchen operation and we have our own training program, which is recognised by the Institute of Hospitality. So our trainees, some of whom got down syndrome some of them might be severely autistic um, and they're all post 19 so some the oldest one we have at the moment is 53 um, but we provide a a training program that normally lasts about uh, two years and what that does is gives them the professional skill sets that they need both to live independently which is very important for people with especially with learning difficulties but also to to gain employment so we're geared up for them working in the industry mostly in the kitchen area um, but not exclusively because we also include within that some housekeeping training which is particularly important if they're learning to live alone mm. as well as they can do some administrative stuff um, and we also now have introduced a thing called a digital pathway so that they can begin to learn how to manage and how to interact with the digital world because I'm sure you'll appreciate people that are coming with learning difficulties and with a whole raft of neurological disorders find it quite difficult initially to interact with the digital world. They can do bits of it so they might have a Facebook page or something, and but 
in terms of communicating with the DWP on their benefits system or interacting with the bank or working with a social worker or interacting with a local authority, increasingly that has to be done digitally. And what we found is that we need to help to help them to help themselves to become confident and we hope secure in that digital environment. So and that's part and parcel of the overall package. So there's the professional dimension giving them a skill set so they can work in the industry. There's, if you like, the social dimension. So we bring them together so that they socialize much more. There's a very active WhatsApp group, for example, including those that have left us, and they maintain contact with each other. So there's that socialization issue there. It's confidence building. It's giving them an aspiration to do something beyond their expectations. And because we're dealing with those that have always been at the margins of society, we're trying to give them the skill sets they need and the confidence to go out there and be themselves and do something for themselves. Just in terms of hospitality and employers then, are they – how – open are they to take people from crumbs that's a very good question some are brilliant um and i'm not sure whether we can mention can we name names yeah go for it of course (laughs) okay so we have a we have great relationship with with rick steins who have a restaurant down in sandbanks and they have been absolutely fantastic as far as that interaction we now have a trainee who's who's still coming to us, but he's now working for Steins 14 hours a week and he's working in the restaurant. Brilliant. He looks incredibly smart, um, you know, in his uniform and so on. Um, we've had trainees there working in the kitchen, in their production kitchen. Um, we're doing placements with them, which is normally a two-week session. We've had two trainees so far working in the kitchens for sessions, and they are brilliant about doing fish masterclasses for our trainees. So we take the trainees down to Steins because they've got all the fish, obviously, and they've yeah, got the yeah. facilities, and they will run a masterclass for us and for our trainees. So, And that relationship relationship has been going on for probably getting on for 18 months, two years, started during the pandemic, but then we've developed it um, really much more actively, shall we say, post-pandemic. The other one that's very, very supportive is Baxter Story. Um, you know, from and they, of course, are different in the sense that what we have there is we have a relationship with their regional manager and also with the unit managers because they're operating in other people's premises. But um, they've been fantastic in much the same sort of way. But they've come in and they run masterclasses. Um, again for the trainees we've had a brazilian chef we've had a portuguese chef we've had a polish chef all from baxter story and we had one of their area chefs not quite sure what his full title is but came and helped us a couple of weeks ago because we did a showcase event when we invited guests some from the industry others to come in for an evening meal you know not that formal a dinner but a three-course and one of their chefs came in and assisted our chefs and, and our uh, trainees with the the finer aspects in relation to the delivery, so to speak. Yeah. And that, again, absolutely fantastic sort of relationship that you can build. I've just started uh, yesterday having discussions with a local hotel who are in themselves um, proudly 
promoting the fact that they have created all sorts of access routes for guests and they've done some work with people with disabilities in the past and we're working with them now to try and establish the similar sorts of relationships it won't be master classes but it will be in their hotel mm-hmm. um, and the opportunity for placements and of course employment because we have had quite some successes in terms of gaining employment. But the problem you always face is that for some employers, it's, oh, is this going to be too difficult for me? Am I going to be able to manage that? What happens if this this goes on? I don't really understand the nature of their disability and so on. How do I, how do I manage them, really? And the answer is you manage them the same way as you manage anybody else, um, in that regard, they're absolutely no different. They may need a little bit of additional support, but one of the things that comes back to us time and time again from employers is how much benefit they get within their own operation from having somebody like one of our trainees working alongside them. said it makes them think. Mm-hmm. It makes them think about what they're doing because they have to explain it to somebody else, often using different terms and different language. So it helps them in that sense. And they say it actually improves the, if you like, the organized, the culture, especially within the kitchen, because yeah. they take care of each other perhaps a little bit more, but they're more inclusive. They bring that trainee into into the operation they want them to be included within it and that gives them a much much better sense of what they're capable of and also what their problems are but also it it said it just enriches the building it enriches the building it makes them you know they, they go in and oh hi luke nice to see you today great how are you and so on it's a different form of interaction mm-hmm. and it it really does they they would tell us that that they get as much out of it as our trainees do. Yeah, and it kind of really feels like it would reprioritize uh, the perspective of people as well, which is, you know, they might be under stress and they might be, you know, go, yeah. but if you've got someone you're looking out for, and, and as you say, I think it will bring out that green and insights term behavior for yes. everyone to just look after that person as a yep. priority. Um, so yep. I think that's a lovely thing. And what about um, employers, uh, you know, that, that might be looking for that? You know, is it only the Bournemouth area? Is it national? You know, how, how does well, that Well, there work? is a national issue there, I must admit. And there, there isn't a great deal of evidence of people um, who come through organisations like ours. And we are not entirely unique. There are others that do similar things. Uh, but again, we don't get any public funding. So we have to rely on goodwill, donations and so on. So but the, I think from a national perspective, the industry has an opportunity now to look and think differently about its workforce and to include and be much more inclusive. I mean, the whole issue about equality, inclusion and diversity. We could, You could argue that you know, we're getting there a little bit in terms of inclusion, but the inclusion means people who might come at you with a whole set of diverse needs. And it's not just about your client base. It's not just about your guests. It's actually more about your staff. We should be looking, I think, as an industry, because there are a significant number of people who, like our trainees, have those degrees of aspirations 
And if we can find ways of encouraging them, getting them into that workforce, they are incredibly valuable in the workforce. Now, let me give you another silly little example. It was when I first got, became involved with Crumbs about three years ago um, and before we introduced a formalized training program. So they were learning more the experiences rather than it being formalized. But we've had uh, a young man probably in his mid-30s, um, never really worked before, but I'm very autistic. And he um, got him a job in a pub, uh, basically the kitchen porter. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't get over him because once he learned how to do something and was entirely focused on it, they said the problem we've got is telling him to stop. Right. You know, when it's break time, come on, Leo, it's time you stopped, you know, go home. You've done, you've done your bit. And, of course, the thing is that you find people with different neurological disorders, they can be incredibly focused on something. And they, once they know how to do it, they can do it extremely well. Mm. And they will repeat it time and time and time again to the same sort of standard. So I think the industry is missing out. It's missing out on a potential labor force, but might come on to something else that we might want to talk about. Because the industry now has to have much more flexible recruitment patterns, because the way society is changing, that more and more people are perhaps looking for much more flexibility in terms of their career options or even in their just general employment, that instead of saying, I can only take these people on a full-time basis or you've got a part-time contract. We're now having to look at these things in a much more flexible way. How do we actually get the people that we need and when we need them? And most people with um, learning difficulties can't work for more than a certain number of hours a week. Otherwise, it impacts directly on their benefits. And, of course, they can't afford to lose those benefits because they're often associated with housing benefits and other types of benefits. And they can't exist entirely on their own through their own devices, as many others would be able to do. So providing you recognize that, but you want somebody for 14, 16 hours a week, whatever it might happen to be, who's going to be a really committed person to you, you're going to have to make some uh small minor changes. You're going to have to help them to get there sometimes, because they might not be too familiar with travel. I mean, the thing, one of the things we do is we help them to understand how to, how to use buses, how to use public transport, you know, Um, and sometimes those things, but the employer can also support and assist in that as well. So once you come come at it from that direction, you'll have a loyal employee, you'll have a long-term employee, you'll have somebody that will actually be a real benefit to your organisation, and there'll be somebody actually who will bring an added dimension that unless you've employed somebody like that, you just don't understand. And it's that added value that somebody with a disability can bring to the business. And the industry at the moment is missing out on that. There's a huge opportunity for the industry, I think, just to recognise the value that these people can actually bring. It's tremendous. And then just in terms of, uh, you know, what you're looking for at Crumbs, you know, are you looking for more employers to get in touch or are you maxed yes, out? Yes, definitely. We are always looking for employers to get in touch. 
by the very nature of what we do and where we do it, it is very much in the Bournemouth Pool, Dorset area. Um, but there will be other organisations. So if if there are listeners out there that uh, would be interested, then just get in touch with us anyway. And even if you're in a different part of the country, we may be able, A, to talk you through some of the issues. And secondly, because we are, we're trying to advocate for this, you know, we want other people to recognise it and recognise what we're doing. But also, we might be able to put you in touch with a particular organisation that we're aware of that's within that area, or how you might be able to find them. And really just to try and remove some of those which many employers see as real barriers to employment but just to talk it through so that they understand where the individuals come from and and to look and and talk to some of the individuals i mean they're incredible sometimes you can't get them to say anything until they really know you and other times you can't get them to stop <laughs> yeah well it sounds like such a rewarding thing to do as well you know and be part of you know it sounds absolutely fantastic so I, I mean I remember I was working out in Seattle uh, with Mod Pizza and you know they were incredibly open you know yeah. to have a diverse yeah. range of people and there was a, a chap uh, there that was had Down syndrome came in for a few hours a day as you're saying yeah. and he was a machine making pizza boxes oh my we, could, we had competitions absolutely. with him you couldn't beat him no, <laughs> so you wouldn't you wouldn't know exactly, and of course, they. I think what they get out of it as well is is tremendous because you've only got to meet somebody like that who's really enjoying the work that they're doing. And the thing that gets me is that they wear their emotions on their sleeves. Mm. You know, it's not hidden, and um, they just, the way that they'll smile at you, the way that they will interact with you, they, they've got to feel comfortable with you in order to get that far. And there is that issue about building their own confidence in unfamiliar environments. But once they become familiar with the environment, then they get, you can see they're getting so much satisfaction out of what they're doing and how they're doing it, that you wouldn't necessarily get with somebody who would, without those particular types of difficulties it might be a little bit more surly in the job and so on but you know i think let's get back to where i start really the industry's got a, a, a good opportunity to really do something here and to make a difference in and it makes a difference to them as a business as well that's the important yeah. thing yeah i think it says so much about your brand i think it would improve your guest experience as well yes you know? yes it does um and and when when people recognise, as they often do, um, and especially if there is a, you know, if you're dealing with somebody with Down syndrome, then um, unfortunately there is an obvious link with their disorder and, and their appearance. Um, but when people recognise that, or, or that they are, they become aware that the person may be autistic or maybe on the autistic spectrum, have severe learning difficulties, whatever, then, of course, that changes their behaviour and attitude to them as well. Now, you don't want them to wear a big you know, sign around their neck. No. But having said that, um, I'll give you a, an experience. It's not of, of neurological disorders, but I was in India recently at the beginning of the year, and I went um, coming out of a hotel in Calcutta, big plush five-star hotel in Calcutta. There was a doorman there and he had a little sign around his neck and said, excuse me, I'm deaf. He opened the door. 
And I just signed Makaton to him saying thank you because we do, I don't know it at all well, but we do use sign language a little bit with some of our, our trainees, not because they don't have language, but sometimes the articulation of the language becomes a little confused. Uh -huh. And so sometimes they prefer to use sign language just to make their point. And, you know, I now know what sign language means for garlic bread, for example. But, so, <laughs> Can you describe it for the listeners? What's that? <laughs> not really, no. <laughs> But anyway, okay. um, <laughs> but link to it. my point was really, as soon as he realized that I'd said thank you to him in, in his own language, I mean, the smile on his face was oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's, that's fantastic. And then obviously, I mean, you're, you're doing that. It's, it's a real passion project as well. It must give you so much, um, you know, happiness as well, working on it. But you've also got, you know, this long list of other great things going on. So eHotelier, you know, was really interesting when, when you were talking to me about that. So you're the Dean and Academic Director for that. Yeah. So what, how did that come about and what, what, what does it entail? Okay, uh, I'll do, do a very short history of it. E-Hotelier started, I think, in 1989. It was owned by a guy and it was one of the first online newscast type operations. So it was doing everything. It was basically just an email every day going to a number of subscribers with little snippets about what had been going on in the industry. So it was a new sheet of sorts. Uh, started by a Swiss uh, guy who was an ex-hotelier actually in Hong Kong um, in, in eight, 89. In 90, um, it started to sort of take off a little bit, but it went on for a long time doing very, very much the same sort of thing. I became directly involved when I moved to Australia to run the Blue Mountains Hotel Schools because the owners of the Blue Mountains Hotel Schools also then acquired eHotelier. Now, part of the reason for that was that one of the directors of my that I was working for was Swiss and there was a Swiss network as you can well imagine <laughs> in the same ways there's an English diaspora there's all all manner of diaspora yeah, yeah. anyway so he acquired eHotelier and I became involved with it from that point on in terms of where could it go what could its developments be and so on so it moved on from being just a straightforward newscast to also being a job shop and all the things that many of the mother now use um so in some senses i think we were quite in the vanguard of developments in that area uh since um that then got acquired by an old colleague of mine matthew stevens who's now the md and the owner of e-hotelier about five years ago um, and I still had maintained my involvement with the organisation, but I came became more involved with Matthew post that because we then decided that one of the things that would be very valuable to the, the industry is really to create professional development opportunities for people to do online. And so we have an online campus. Uh, individual companies can have their own campuses where they put their own materials on and some of our materials as well. Um, we also, there's still a Daily Insights news sheet that goes out, um, but that's more about, it's not just saying, well, Fred's moved from Mumbai to 
Calcutta or whatever it might happen yeah, to be. Yeah. It's more, there is some of that still, but it's more about trying to get hoteliers to be aware of what the developments are going on in the industry, where they're going on. Some of it's advertising, some of it's sponsored as you would have expected. Yeah. But it, so it's a much more comprehensive offer now than it was before. Um, and the online material, the professional development platform is a unique learning platform um, called Exceed, and it does the learning management for all the companies. So the back end of it will keep track of every single person that you've got on, registered on there, what they're up to, what what courses they're actually doing, how well they're doing, what completions they've got, and so on. So we've got a sort of certification associated with that, and that, again, we've had all those courses endorsed by the Institute of Hospitality to say that they are of an appropriate standard. Um, so that's one aspect of that, and mm -hmm. that's something that's been developed. The other thing that we've done is we've looked at what are the key issues going on in the industry. It's from time to time, we don't do it all the time, and um, we've produced reports or white papers. So we did one uh, during the pandemic called Hospitality in the Post-COVID World, or, and what that was trying to do was to point up some of the key issues that we thought the industry was going to have to face as it as as we went through the pandemic. What was likely likely to recover first? What were some of the key themes that were going to come out of this, and so on? And that had uh, a very very good readership. I think we had over three and a half thousand downloads in, and um, lots of contacts from people. In, in terms of things like webinars, actually, to yeah. be honest. We did a, quite a few of those as well. And then the most recent one that we did, we started last uh, last year, towards the end of last year, which was a major international survey looking at what the industry said its future skills needs were going to be. And we started that by also looking at what, what they thought were the key changes that had taken place or post-pandemic so while I was able to relate that to the work that we'd done before and you know, quite modestly pleased to see that some of the things that we had been talking about were exactly what the industry was now talking about you know, two years later. Um, but so we were looking at what those changes were, but how were those changes changing their skill needs and how were they changing their employment practices, their recruitment and retention issues, the professional development, because there's a knock on that goes all the way through and what was happening with training and education. And so it, we, we classified and categorized it under those sorts of broad headings. We had over 800 usable responses from all, literally all over the world. Everybody from presidents, chief executives, all the way through, if you like, the hierarchy of the industry. So we've got a very good cross-section of the industry in terms of roles. We've got a very good cross-section of the industry in terms of locations, uh, Far East, America, Europe, and uh, Africa and so on. And we've got a very good cross-section in terms of the scale of the size of the businesses, everything from small businesses, less than 10 employees, to corporates with over 2,500. What's interesting is the results are pretty much the same. Right. Whether you look at it from a small and medium enterprise point of view, whether you're looking at it in Indonesia or I'm looking at it in Austria, the, the, the results are pretty much the same. And can so you talk that, about the results at all? I can certainly highlight some of the key issues. Yeah. The report is likely to be published 
uh, towards the end of next week. Oh, great. Um, so the sort of key things that are coming out are obviously the business model for a lot, most businesses is considered not only to have changed but needs to continue to change. Mm. So they're very aware that what they were doing, there is no such word as normal anymore or going back to normal. You've got to work with what, where you are and what you've got. And you also know that the pace of the change is, is quite dramatic. Mm. There's, so there's issues around the way that the industry, in terms of its operational style, its functionality to some extent, the, the involvement of technology and so on, all these are having an impact on the way that the industry is moving forward. Mm-hmm. All of that has an impact on recruitment, retention, training, and so on. The, uh, the second key issue, and that's one that is completely universal, is staff and staff shortages. And you have to ask yourself the question, well, why is it so universal? This has got to be more than we've just lost these out of this workforce in the UK or in Europe or whatever, if everybody is saying the same thing. Mm. Where you would have expected there to be, I won't say full employment, but you wouldn't have had the same staffing problems. Now, let me give you another example of that, again, based on my recent experiences in India, where I did a seminar workshop for a a, a city hoteliers association and I was talking about some of the things that we're talking about now and of course some of them were saying some of the hotelier general managers were saying well it's not an issue here because we only have permanent contracts and they work 57 to 70 hours a week or whatever it might happen to be it's not a big deal and then all of a sudden somebody said it is a big deal and this was from a, one of the major international brands saying for the first time Ever, we're now looking at part-time and flexible contracts. And that's because we can't get the right staff with the right skill sets that we need to be able to deliver the service that we need to our customers. Now, if that's happening in places like India, where you would have imagined that there's, you know, you could argue there's a lot more people available for employment, why is it? a universal issue across the industry that people are not looking for jobs in the industry. Mm. Everybody's got that staff shortage. And I think there are a number of things coming out of that that we picked up on. One was work-life balance in that people are now saying, I'm, yeah, I'm happy to come and work for you, but I'm only prepared to work for this number of hours. And I've always got to have Thursday afternoons free because I do Tai Chi on that day or I do something else on that day. So what the pandemic has done, I think, is it's forced people to reassess what they really want to do and what they're really interested in. And the issues about looking after themselves and having a life outside work Mm. is actually much more important to them. And there's some extremely good, albeit anecdotal, examples of that, whereby all of a sudden trying to recruit to and manage staff has become much more complex. And you you probably got, in some cases that I'm aware of, where hotels have had to, they've probably got three times the number of staff on their books that they had pre-pandemic. And the reason for that is they need much more flexibility of labour 
and, and the people are looking for flexibility. So I refer to this as that the industry is having to work towards a negotiated contract, almost between equals. You come and work for me, I'm going to pay you. But, but the other issue that's coming out of that as well, which I thought was quite interesting, was that people, potential employees, are looking for values that the, that particular company relate to and demonstrate. And the industry has told us that they want people who are honest, truthful, all the things that you would have expected. But all of a sudden, the employees are saying, yes, but you've got to be honest, truthful, empathetic. You know, you, I've got to be able to trust and have confidence in you as a yeah. brand. So it's, it's, I won't say it's attacking brand values, but it's making them become much more apparent in terms of their behavior both to the customer, but also to their staff. So you've got quite a lot of to unpack of what's actually going on under the under the waves, if you like. Yeah. Um, and it's not that immediately obvious. So I think some of it's to do with with consumer behaviour, people's people's belief systems, in the sense of that they've gone through a major shock, and we're still going through that shock. It's not finished. There's, there's, a, there's a nice view that says, oh, that's all right, it's all over and done with, we don't need to worry about that anymore. But actually what it's done, and then we're in, a, we're in a much more volatile world, we've got wars going on in Europe, we've got financial insecurity, we've got banks crashing, all those things change people's behaviour and, and the way they view the world. And if you like, we don't have that sort of degree of self-confidence that we might have had before. And that's impacting, and it's impacting not just on staff, but it's impacting on consumers. And I what, forgot the question, sorry. Oh, no, it's all right. You know, <laughs> we, were talk, we were talking about e-hotelier and we were talking about... Uh, yeah, oh, sorry, just, just, it's just about what, the report. Just, yeah. yeah, just... So that was, <laughs> that's yeah. one of the other big things that's coming out of it. The, so the whole recruitment and retention issue, the fact that you've got to offer something to people that's where there's clear professional development opportunities engaged with that. Um, and nothing's new or revolutionary in what we're saying. All we're saying is that you've got to package it, guys, and you've got to think about it differently. The other issue there is that there is... A, clear reduction in what we would call the talent pipeline. So there has been the industry traditionally across the world has almost said, well, that's fine. You know, we'll just turn the tap on and people will come in and we've got the skill sets that we need and off we go. That's not happening. Another good example of that, again, only anecdotal, I ran a webinar uh, two weeks ago for uh, International Association of Hotel Schools, 54-odd people on the webinar i asked them all the question are you seeing an increase in your number of students or are you seeing a decrease and the answer was for everybody a decrease in the number of students wow. now what's that telling you that's telling you that there are fewer and fewer people who are looking at hospitality as a career option so if they're not going into the pipeline at the education end wow. they're not coming out of that pipeline into the industry end so the industry's got to think differently um, about where it's recruiting. Mm -hmm. It has to take more responsibility, I think, for the training. And But then again, they've got a much more complex environment to deal with because you're going to probably have more of them. Yeah. Do you know, do you know if um, like entries to universities and colleges is going down a micro level? Yes. 
So it's going down as well? Yes. Wow. What are so people doing? Is everyone going to be a crypto millionaire? What, what's happening? Well, first of all, you haven't got as many as you had in the past. So you've really sure. obviously got, you've got quite big demographic waves taking place. The other is, I think, that, again, it comes back to younger new entrants wanting to make sure that they, they're more in control of their lives and they want to be much more in control of what they do when they do it and so on. And they are looking perhaps for different types of opportunities in uh, in a different way. And I can't pretend to understand the mindset of those generations, I'm afraid. Mm. But I do recognise where they're coming from. And if I think back to my generations, it was all about safety, security, getting the job, getting the career, and look where you're going to end up, and there you're going to get a gold watch at the end of it. Yeah. There was this sort of longevity involved in this. Now, I don't think that's in the psyche in the same way. And it's got we've got to be, if you like, as an industry, more receptive to those changes and more resilient and not try and use an employment model that we used before. But we're seeing this universally. There are fewer people wanting to come into hospitality education um, or into the industry. Now, that also implies that we've also got to do something about the offer. What is it that we're offering these people? And how do we overcome that? And, and some of it's about getting all of the stakeholders involved, their parents, the schools, to, to recognise the career opportunities, but also and you know, the sort of thing that you'll be doing, if you like, the satisfaction, the fun, the confidence. But we also need to also recognise that it's not for everybody. Mm. And I think one of the dangers that you get is sometimes is that people will go into um, a hospitality degree program thinking, well, I, I, it's it's management, it's fine, it's okay, without, and then they get the experience of the industry and realise it's much more complicated than running a retail operation or sitting in a bank. You know, you're dealing with lots and lots of complexities all the time, every minute almost. You've got customers, staff, it's what I call prosumer economics, you know. I can only produce it when that customer's ready to consume it, yeah. certainly as far as food and beverage is concerned. So, you know, you're dealing with a much, much more complex environment. Some people just shy away from that. They don't like it. So there's more about what sort of person there's more about what, what are we looking for, um, and I think there's more about investment in those people rather than just treating them as staff. What I mean, what can we do to, to turn that around? I mean, obviously, it's a slightly loaded question in a way that, you know, we've started on this Hospitality Rising journey and campaign. Um, you know, we're, we're getting close to 100,000 applications from it. Um, we've reached half... Uh, of the 16 to 30 year olds um, in 22 weeks in the UK, um, at least once, uh, we need to really reach them four times for anything to happen. But, you know, what what can we do as an industry really to, to, to shake well, off think, those I barriers? It's, it's a very interesting question. And I think you've also got to just step back from the question a little bit and say, what are the key influences for these people? And what are they bombarded with on a daily basis? So they're getting goodness knows how many million messages a day through their phones, through everything that they do, which are all about buy this, buy that, do that, do the other. If you behave like this, you'll become a great 
something else. Mm. What that what none of that does is create the experience. It bombards them with messages, overloads them in many cases, but it doesn't actually create the experience of doing something. And I think, I really do believe that the only way you're going to get to where we need to get is to move the messaging so that it funnels them into an experience. Mm -hmm. And one way of dealing with that is, is perhaps change the nature of the messaging, not so that it says to them, this is what you can do as an employer, but, hey, how much fun do you have as a customer? Yeah. If you think about it, probably, I don't know, let's make a vast oversimplification, 90% of the population probably use a hospitality venue at least once a week. Mm -hmm. Anything from a fast food outlet to a cafe operation to going into a pub to going to have a meal somewhere, whatever. Or they go into a venue where they might be going to an an experience, a venue, and they'll buy the drink and service and so on. So everybody everybody thinks they know what hospitality is all about because they experience it from a consumer's point of view. We've got to try and get that idea that did you have a great experience into turning that into you can contribute to that experience Mm -hmm. And you can help to deliver that experience. You know what the experience is like. You would know, if you if you stop to think about it, how you might want to improve that experience, what was good about it, what didn't you like about it. How can we convert that into an into them being a contributor to that experience by working in it? Mm-hmm. Now, I think part of that as well is to be much more open in terms of the way that we bring people into the industry. So I mean, I've seen these happening when we were in Australia. We were doing this sort of thing in Australia. And I know that it's happening in the UK in some in some interesting areas. But you bring the people in. You give them that experience. But you don't bring them in on their own. You bring in their parents and so on. So, for example, uh, you might bring them into your particular hotel, you give them and the parents afternoon tea, they get the back of house tour, they get to understand what it means to work actually in the industry. Mm-hmm. They can have you do a few little role plays with them about serving afternoon tea or something. You get them engaged in the activities of the business and then they go away from that with a different perception completely mm-hmm. than if they've only seen it from the outside. And some of them their experience of fine dining, they may have none at all. If you think about it, how many people actually have their meals on their laps in front of the telly now? I always used to refer to it, have you got your knees under a table? So if you've got (laughs) your knees under a table, then it's a different dining experience than if you're eating it off your lap. So it's about how do we encourage them to understand something about the nature of what they're doing through experiencing it initially as the consumer and then bringing them in from from into a different type of experience to show them if you like the scale of hospitality and what it can really offer but i don't think we're going to get there purely by giving them media messages mm-hmm. the media message is only the initial small little hook yep. is then what do we follow it up with and it's not by making them 
I hesitate to say that, by getting them to fill in an application form, is getting them to come in first so they really begin to understand what it's all about. Yeah. Then they make the application on the basis that they're much more likely to be a conversion. Do you think there's a parent-child type relationship, though? And, and what I mean by that is people that are going into hospitality then I don't know if they feel above them, but they feel that person's there to serve me and they just wouldn't consider being the other side of the counter. Do you, do you think yeah, that that? Is an, that's an attitudinal thing that we've often, we've always had, more mm. so in this country than, than most other countries. And I refer to that as that we're always seen as being below the salt. Right. You know, from the old medieval thing that you actually had the lords of the manor in front of the salt at the top of the table and then you had the servants at the bottom below the salt and we've always been seen as being below the salt and and it's overcoming that issue about servile and civility and that's uh, you know the upstairs downstairs syndrome and that's something that you have to overcome but I think you can overcome that by getting the parents to recognize what the industry is really all about. They only tend to see it either through the imagery that they receive on the television and their own experiences of it. Mm. But um, it's about changing those perceptions, and that's not easy. I'm not saying it, it is easy by any means, but I think the only way you're doing it is by getting everybody to change their perceptions of it and how do they change that perception. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And then is there a demographics thing going two ways, right? So f to your point about fine dining, you know, a lot of demographics and social demographics, et cetera, would never have went there, Correct. you know, anyone posh. And then the other way is, oh, we couldn't have young Tarquin or whatever working there because he needs to be a doctor or whatever. Is, is that sort of friction there as well? That friction's always been there, and it's again, it's about social status and social standing, and that's why I think by bringing people into the business, they can see mm. that actually, a, it's a much more complicated business to think about. It might not have the the apparent social standing of a doctor or a lawyer, or whatever, but it's a much more fun business to work in, and it gives you a much more, a much greater. Well, I think it gives you equally, if not more satisfaction so there is that issue that you've always got to uh, try and overcome that um and there is there is no simple solution i think yeah. it's got to be much more about engagement it's got to be about something active that brings them in so they can experience the industry from both sides not yeah. purely and simply either seeing it through a plate glass window or on a television screen or, and that's how their perceptions are gauged and developed. But it is more about, and it's also about the broader stakeholders, if you like, who are involved in the decision processes. Mm. Because there's no doubt that parents and peers are significant influencers when it comes around to career choices and career options. And that's why you often see sons and daughters of uh, hoteliers, hospitality people, yeah. either kicking it, as it says behind your head, and not <laughs> having anything to do with it at all, or yeah. quite the reverse, saying, hey, I, this is a great industry to work in. I'm going to carry on where my parents left off. And you do get both models, but it's also about this issue about 
demonstrating how flexible, how responsive we can be, the value that the training that we can provide and so on. Uh, and and they're, they're, they're development opportunities. I mean, yeah. They could be wearing a very, very fine suit and managing a very, very fine property if that's what their aspirations want to take them to do. There are no barriers to entry. Yeah. The difference being... If you want to be a doctor, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a chartered accountant or whatever other boring professions you can think of, there are real barriers to entry. For our industry, bump, there are no barriers to entry. So you, doesn't, you don't have to do anything specifically or have anything specifically to come in, but you can, you can aspire to what you like. Hey, I'm Sam from Airship and Toggle. You might remember me from hospitality marketing campaigns such as Jetpack Santa, Toggle Time 2, or anything that involves Chico from The X Factor. Well, now we're delighted to be supporting the latest series of the Supersonic Hospitality Marketing Podcast and the wonderful human that is Mark McCulloch. Airship is the CRM system built specifically for hospitality, which integrates with over 100 tech platforms, including Vita Mojo. Hey, guys, fancy seeing you here. And allows you to build personalized, automated marketing journeys for your customers. Toggle is the hospitality gift card platform that integrates with your existing EPOS and allows you to sell physical and digital cards, as well as experiences, retail items, tickets, and more, both online and in venue. Both platforms are currently available half price as part of our budget proof campaign, as we aim to support our sector the best way we know how. You can learn more at airship.co.uk or use toggle.com, or you can just drop me an email at sam at airship.co.uk. A creative agency for the hospitality sector, Saved by Robots create compelling brands and memorable experiences through great design and engaging storytelling. From Scottish Restaurant of the Year Sugar Boat to Tip Jar, the digital tipping platform that's taken over the world, Saved by Robots excel at bringing ideas to life. As well as developing new concepts and refreshing existing brands, the robots provide outsourced graphic design to help multi-site operators grow with confidence. Check out their work and get in touch at savedbyrobots.com. Well, it's interesting. I was on a webinar the other day just to comment on a, an industry report that came out and it was looking at NPS scores and people that are currently in, um, you know, hospitality at the moment, the NPS of front of house, back of house was minus 21. Mm. And people in head office was 33. So it was like a 50 odd point swing. And you're just like, oh my God. And the thing I was talking to to the chap that was interviewing me about was like, I, I'm definitely not a fan of all roads lead to head office. You know, no, I, no, I, I'd no. love it to just be that great people just loved being front of house, back of house and hosting yeah. and just being excellent at their job. But something we probably need to change is, as you're saying, the social status that goes along with that and the reward and recognition that goes along with that. Rather than putting yeah. your best player in a back office, you know, it's probably yeah. the worst thing that we can do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, the other danger is that you've got people making decisions in the in the head office, if you like, who don't have that operational experience of knowing what it what those decisions mean and yes. on the ground level. Yeah. And um, so, I always one really that we are an industry, and I like to th I try and make some 
correlations with other industries. We're an industry where you know that you've really got to work with your hands. Mm-hmm. You, you've got to be prepared to roll your sleeves up and do things. And people say, oh, yeah, but, you know, the world's not going like that. And I said, well, okay. So you think about that. Would you like to be have your appendix removed by a surgeon that's never ever done that before? Never rolled their sleeves up and got the, you know, got blood on their hands from actually doing something like that? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm talking. Yes, you could say that there is a different. Clearly, it's a different profession. It's different, but you know, you don't become a great surgeon by sitting in an office and watching YouTube videos on how to do it. You don't become a great hotel manager or a great restaurateur unless you've done that and you know what it means. You don't get there unless you know how it all works. Yeah. And that's like the Starbucks CEO is going to do a shift a week, apparently. Only one? One shift a week. Well, I suppose (laughs) it's better than none. It's better than none. It's (laughs) better than none. But yeah. yeah. Um, so I was also going to ask you about the recruitment process as well. So I personally feel it's broken. You know, mm. I, I think kids today, and I don't mean to be disparaging, I'm focusing on under 30s being selfish, but in terms of the under 30s, they don't want to fill out form after form after form after form, cover letters, all the rest of it. And I think there needs to be a two-way street there, which is asking the Gen Z and, 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 and millennials, how do they want to apply? You know, what, in, in what ways? And then at the other end, in terms of receiving applications, how can we do things differently? Because it's not changed since I was a boy. No, no, it hasn't changed since I was a boy and I'm older than you. Um, <laughs> only just. <laughs> only just, yeah, that's true. That's very flattering. Um, but one of the things I think... That, Again, you see, it comes back to the work that we were doing in terms of the e-hotelier survey, is really trying to understand what those issues are um, in terms of recruitment and retention. If you think about the recruitment process at the moment, it's sort of semi-automated, but it's all based on what's this person, what is this person telling me on the form, how old they are and all that other good stuff. And you think, is that really what I need to know? What I need to know from this person is some really very small biographical details. So it could be something as simple as saying, you know, what age range are you in? What are your interests? Um, And then you get them to do a two minute video, Mm. just like we're doing Mm -hmm. and say, why do you want to come? Why would you be interested in working for us? So that two minute video would be something along the lines, you know, that I'm really interested in hospitality because I'm a real people person. You know, you can just imagine it. But what that will tell you, A, it will give you a clue about the character of the individual. Mm. Whereas at the moment, I mean, you've used G chat GPT the same way as I have and other things. You know, those things, if I was any, if I was looking for that sort of, well, I'm going to get them to do all that donkey work for me i'm not going to sit there and do it on myself and the other thing is as you go through that process is that a lot of it's repetitious so oh i didn't get that job i'll press the button for that one yeah so they're not targeting it at all but if you had a system that said great to hear from you just send us a two-minute video and if they don't seem to fit there was something about them that you don't seem to fit fine but what that would say to you is that great okay The next stage is you come in and see us. We give you that experience that we've just been talking about. You begin to understand the business that we're actually in. And then 
we we do that because what we're interested in is you. We're interested mm. in you as a person, you as a character. I'm not interested in. I'm not that interested that you've got a PhD in ancient Greek philosophy or whatever, because quite frankly, that's not really relevant to my business. It <laughs> it's not a Greek restaurant. <laughs> you, yeah, it might demonstrate that you have the ability to write you know, a whole mess of words about very little, but yeah. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be any good at doing the job. So I need to get you into there. And I don't mean that, I mean, people say, oh, we'll give you a trial shift. That's assuming they've got the skill sets that you're immediately looking for. Yeah. What you've got to do is say, What's this person's potential in terms of the skill sets that I really need? Not to say to them, oh, we'll give you a trial shift. That's not the way to go. My view would be you bring them in, you give them an experience, a hospitality experience. You then talk to them about what their interests are, what they would be looking for, and you will make a value judgment based on that person in your environment. Yeah. Doing it as a paper exercise, I'm afraid, or even an in-tray exercise is not going to give you what you really need. And you've got to, you've got to cut down that barrier. Most people in that demographic, 16 to 30, they're making videos every day. Yeah. Yeah. And just make I, sure they send you the right ones. <laughs> it could be interesting. But I think, um, I think, you know, from, from that point of view, you know, there's a couple of good experiences I've had in, in the last week well, which is, uh, we did a, a TikTok uh, application project for a, a company in Scotland. And yeah, um, yeah we got a thousand applications, Backwater Scotland. You're kind of thinking, TikTok, has it reached there yet? Don't know. Um, but we did it. And then all the all the applicant had to do was watch the video and then just put hashtag, I need a job in the, yeah, in okay. the text. And then the HR you know, uh, department did the rest. And it was just incredibly sticky. And I, and I think we, you know, we are going to have to go that way. And I think the video idea is such a good one. And it takes me back years. I worked at Earth Price Records, if you remember Earth Price Records. And the interview there was exactly as you're saying. It was more about mm -hmm. you and your attitudes. And it was, tells mm -hmm. your top 10 bands. Tell, and it was all about passion, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, it's about passion, commitment, enthusiasm. And, you know, that might be latent in the individual. It might not be that well developed because yeah. they haven't had been exposed to the hospitality environment in the way that you want them to be. But once they're into that environment, if you can begin to see that spark, if you can begin to see that curiosity, they're looking around, they're thinking, oh, that's interesting. How do they do that? Or, oh, I wouldn't mind having a go at that. If you can get them into that, then you you as the potential employer, you're noticing what's going on around and they're noticing what's going on. And yeah. if the, if you've got that, then you've really got something to work with. And I think, yeah, you could do you know, the TikTok video. If you're interested, click on here, record your own two-minute video, and off you go. Yeah. And I think also that's a great point is if communication is in the art of the received, which it is, then I think a lot of it is to do with giving people options on how to apply as well. Some yeah, people yeah, sure. might be detail-oriented and want to fill out a big thing. Great, crack on. Or a video, or a short thing, or a whatever. You whatever. know, do, you know. so I, I, I think we could be a lot more open. And then I think we do shoot ourselves in the foot a lot. For example, on Instagram this morning, I think, I read on Countertalk, um, Ralph's thing, uh, which is, you know, a, a great forum for, for hospitality and people sharing thoughts and ideas. And there was a load of stuff on there about people getting ghosted after they'd done a trial shift. And the, the company didn't even have the respect to write to them to say it I went know. well or not, you know. And you just think, come on. 
You know, yeah, no, no, that's that's appalling, and and then you can't really wonder, can you, about the 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 way that we are perceived and seen. I mean, that's happened. I've got not me personally, but um, I, I'm very aware of people that have gone to interviews for things and uh, they've had no feedback. They've done trial shifts, they've had no feedback, and they've just been ignored. It's yeah. as as much as to say, well, we don't need you. That's it. Forget it. Or yeah. they might be saying they'll say something. Well, unless you hear from us, it's a bit. It's not a. It's not a. You're not auditioning. Well, yeah, I suppose you are auditioning in some <laughs> yeah, respects. But you know, we're not. We should. We should be demonstrating what is hospitality all about. It's about being hospitable. Mm. We should need to be as equally hospitable to the people who work with us, not for us, but with us, as we are with our customers. If we're not showing the same sorts of behaviours, how can we expect to get the right people to deliver it to our to our customers? We can't. Yeah. So. I think there is, and that's there is a shift there, and I think, unfortunately, I mean, I used to when I was still lecturing. One of the things I used to have a a module on HR, and I used to say that it would be my ambition that within ten years that we no longer have HR modules in uh, undergraduate courses because we don't have a requirement for HR anymore. Um, I haven't been proved to be right. But what I was trying to get to was the issue that often people, you subdivide it too much. You section it off. You say, oh, well, that's somebody else's responsibility. And actually it's not. And and I came across this many, many times when you talk to an operational manager and he might have a staff issue. So I said, well, how do you get get the staff? I said, well, I tell HR what I want and they go and do it. And then the person arrives and they're no damn good. Well, of course they're no damn good because you haven't been involved in the process. Yeah. You've got no input into that process. If you want to get the person that's going to be right for you and they and you're going to be right for them, then that's only possible if you're engaged in that process. Yeah. And I think what I was trying to get at is that we need more operations people to be engaged in actually the recruitment process. It's no good just getting somebody else to do it for you. Yes, they can help by all means. And I think HR are very important. I've got to say this now, just in case. Yeah, I was going to say that. (laughs) Yeah, they're very important in making sure we do all the right things in the right way. You know, we've got all the regulatory policy controls, all of that. We've got all of those in place. But when it comes down to the actual end of the process, the actual finite recruitment, it's got to be the person, the people that they're going to be working with the manager of the people that they're going to be working with, not some remote organisation or remote person who's never actually rolled their sleeves up. Yeah. And then, you know, talking about, you know, other groups as well, I mean, obviously my uh, sort of focus at the moment anyway is is sort of that 16 to 30 bracket. But thinking about uh, older workers as well, you know, that sort of 45, 55 and above, um, you know, do you think that's a market worth tapping into? Is there enough of them or would they be interested? Well, why don't we think slightly further than that as well? Mm. So I was uh, at a workshop yesterday, you know, at the uni- a university workshop yesterday, and there was a statistic that appeared on the screen that I'd, uh, I probably was vaguely aware of but came in stark reality. In the 19, oh, sorry, in the 2021 census, uh, 10% of the population are, are over 65. Mm-hmm. 
one-sixth of the UK population are actually within that demographic. Therefore, they're not actively seeking work in the majority of the cases. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean to say that they're not prepared to work mm -hmm. or wouldn't enjoy work. Mm -hmm. Because one of the issues that you have often with people in that over 65 bracket is that, is, is well, call it loneliness, you know, in the sense that they're, they become excluded from the mainstream of society. Yeah. And if people retire early, yeah, they might love to play golf. But it comes back to my point about flexible employment practices. We could be doing just as much with my crumbs trainees as we could be doing with 45 50 year olds as we could be doing with 70 year olds yeah yeah and and all of them have got a contribution that they can make and yes it might be different but it doesn't mean to say it's not valuable or couldn't add value to your business and we've tended to rather assume that we're going to get people in certain categories in certain age brackets um, with certain skill sets and what I'm saying now is that you can't make that assumption anymore you've really yeah. got to think way outside your box mm. because the situation is not going to change all of a sudden you're not going to get millions and millions of people flocking into the industry yeah. so we've got to learn to live with where we are We've got yeah. to manage where we are and we've got to be much more proactive in terms of what we're offering and how we're offering it. And I come back to my point. I think it's got to be a negotiated employment partnership, yeah. but it can relate to anybody yeah. with people with disabilities, people that you would call, you know, over 65, active, retired, call them what the hell you like. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. But what they're often looking for is something over and above and beyond. Um, and I'll give you another very interesting example of this. I'm going way back. Um, yeah. Anton Edelman was the executive chef at the Savoy, and Anton Edelman was a good friend of mine. And I went to see him one day around lunchtime, which is always a good time to go and see an executive chef in a five-star hotel. <laughs> and um, anyway, this guy came in into Anton's office when we were sitting there having a coffee. And... Um, said something along the lines of, um, uh, Mr. Edelman, uh, do you need your suit pressing? I can't remember what it was anyway. And off took his stuff and off he went. And I said to Anton, is he your private butler? And he <laughs> said, well, no, not exactly. He said, but he used to work here. And then he left, he retired, his wife died. And he was so lonely, he didn't know what to do. And he came back to me and he said, is there anything I can do to help you? And Anton said, well, yeah, look, okay. And he came in, I think, I forget how many days a week. He might have come in all five and done four hours each morning or yeah. something like that. But he was making a really valued contribution to the organisation. And it, his motivation for work was because he wanted to be seen as being part of that community. Mm. He wanted that degree of social interaction. And actually, he thoroughly enjoyed providing a service. Yeah. And so... You know, we, we seem to exclude people like that because yeah. our employment practices tend to not to think about them as being valuable to us. Um, and they only often appear like that one did by accident rather than by design. What I'm saying now is that we need to be much broader in terms of thinking about these things and being much more flexible in terms of who could work for us, when they could work for us, what contribution they could make and so on. What well, it feels in, in football in terms like you, now you've got to run a squad system rather than a standard 11. 
you know? Correct. Yeah, Correct. I, I, I think that's really helpful. And also, back to what you were saying about crumbs as well, you know, taking on someone that's maybe 20 years your senior and you're, you know, a highly decorated HR person, whatever, that could be a little bit intimidating and a little bit harder to do. And, you know, but to your point earlier about the crumbs, uh, you know, team, these people are going to bring life experience. They're going to bring yes. different culture. They're going to, yes. and, and, and it's almost like mature students, actually, you know, they always yep. seem to be more engaged yep. than the youngins, <laughs> which yeah, you absolutely. probably know about, you know, absolutely. they're always sitting in the front. <laughs> and to some extent, they've got a different set of motivation yeah. to, to want to be engaged. They are more engaged. They've got those life experiences, but they also want to learn new things as well. I mean, that's the other thing is that then, yeah, they might go, oh, I don't like computers. I can't touch those. But actually, if you get them engaged in that process, all of a sudden they'll take them on as though they're their own. Yeah. Um, and it's only because they haven't had the opportunity in the past. It's not because they haven't got the capability of doing things like that. Yeah. And I think we underestimate and we undervalue all of these that – sit around the edge, if you like. I think, as you say, they've got to become part of the squad. Mm. And the more you've got them available within the squad, then the bigger the squad is, the better the opportunities are going to be. But that squad's going to be learning from each other. It's going to be training together. Mm. It's going to be developing a cohesiveness and a community all of its own. Mm. And actually what you need in, in the hospitality business is that internal community, don't you? Yeah. You want everybody, because you know... I've been in it for such a long time. I I know that you can't exist without those other people alongside you yeah. because you rely on them and they're relying on you. And when things, when the muck hits the fan, as often it does, and you can't do much about that, you need them to be there for you. You need yeah. them to support you. And that's when you have to come together as a team. And, a and also... And also, just as a um, guest experience point as well, I can think of three occasions really recently where I've had uh, older gentlemen serving me. Um, and there was just something just so, I don't know, just relaxed, accomplished, comfortable in their own skin. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, I, and I just yeah. felt better as a guest. You know, I felt yeah, yeah. really looked after and there was just something yeah, yeah. magical there you know just for that that life experience as you say well but it's about they've got that self-confidence often yeah. they've been there done that i've got yeah. how many t-shirts do i really need and i can i can do that mm. and so they feel comfortable in that environment they're not hesitant in the environment younger people are almost oh i don't really want to be doing this crack bang get it out <laughs> and, and so on um, and that's because they haven't built those life experiences and they haven't got that degree of self-confidence but if you've got somebody of whatever age who's got that self-confidence it makes you feel so much better mm. i won't bore you with the story but years ago a colleague of mine with exactly the same name as me, both of us <laughs> academics, we wrote an article that got published in Cornell Ho Hotel Quarterly called Stress, Are You Serving It to Your Customers? <sighs> and that was really all based around that issue that you've been talking about. It's about making feel comfortable in the environment. Yeah. And if the staff aren't even comfortable in the environment, how the hell are the customers going to be comfortable in the environment? Yeah. No, it definitely permeates through. And then um, we're, Back chatting about, uh, you know, your sort of ex 
what you're what you're up to right now in terms of experience. So Institute of Hospitality is really interesting. It's reasonably new to me actually, and I've only met uh, Robert lately, and he's he's sort of got involved with um, uh, Hospitality Rising and, and things like that. So yeah, it'd be good to just know about them as well for for listeners to get involved in IOH as well. Yeah, well, that's been around for a long time. I mean, it's got quite a long history and a very, um, very interesting professional history. It started off as amalgamations of housekeepers association, hoteliers associations and so on into what we now have as the Institute of Hospitality. My involvement with them is is, is largely academic in inverted commas um, and goes back an awful long way Uh when I first became involved oh, many years ago was when the Institute were running its own awards. It had its own awarding body and it had its own recognised awarding structures and so on. So I became involved then and I've been in and out in support of it, depending upon where I've been in the world or what else I've been doing. But the role I have now is as the chair of the professional review panel. And what we do is that we do all the accreditation and endorsement for the Institute. So the Institute has a set of management standards and it has criteria, if you like, that says that if we were going to accredit a academic a program of learning to, that says it meets the, our professional standards, then it's obviously got to be do this, do that whatever and that's exactly what we do so we i chair the panel that looks at all the accreditation applications and over the last four or five years possibly slightly longer we've extended that idea to look at endorsement so this is where you have training programs they may come from employers they may come from professional training providers they come come from uh, associations it doesn't really matter but our criteria there is to say are these contributing to the professional development of the industry mm. how do they contribute they can be very short it could be i don't know a three-hour course that we could endorse or it could be it could be a series of two-day courses it could be all sorts of things but the key criteria for us is how is that and I'll use a phrase that one of my old colleagues used to keep talking about. How is that improving the flavour of the tomato soup? What right. we're talking about is how is that improving the hospitality workforce? Mm -hmm. What is it making a positive contribution to the way that hospitality operates? Um, and is it meeting those professional development criteria? And if it's doing that, then they can become endorsed. So with, there's two strands to that, and I think they're quite important because they provide a kite mark, A, to the academic institution, that this has been very, very thoroughly evaluated yeah. and considered by the professional body to be of a standard where the students coming out of that are ready to make a contribution to the industry. And the same thing with endorsement in that people going through those training programs, short courses, whatever they might be, they are, we're making a real contribution to them as individuals, their career opportunities, but it's also making a real difference to the industry. So that's really where we come from with those things. And then just thinking about students, you know, coming into hospitality and also new people coming into hospitality, you know, you've got the t-shirts as you're saying, what, like what, would be the skills you think would be best for people to have or work on when, when they're wanting to come into the hospitality industry? Okay. Um, 
what we're really looking at is, uh, I'll go back to the, the e-hotelier research. So yeah. if you want to, to, to identify what the keys are, what is it that the industry feels they need in terms of personal characteristics, the first is communication. And that's not, just not the ability to talk about it, but the key there is also listening. And also being able to use your communication skills to work effectively in a team. Because hospitality is all about working in a team. Whether It doesn't matter what a hotel team, a restaurant team, an event team, it doesn't matter. You're always working with other people and you need that team to work cohesively, collegiately, collectively to deliver when you need it to be delivered. So communication is absolutely critical to that. The ability to communicate well, the ability to listen, to accept, to be able to make decisions on the basis of the information that's becoming, uh, you know, you're collecting and so on. Um, so the key there is communication in all, all of its myriad forms. Um, and not that doesn't mean telling, it doesn't mean ordering, it means communicating. Yeah. Uh, team working, the ability to be, um, I call it empathetic, but I think you know what I mean, to be able to understand what, what the customer is actually about. So it's understanding the customer service skills that you need, and that's a professional skill. And then we're talking about a little, there are some aspects of numeracy that we need. We, we don't need people to actually be accountants. We don't need them to actually be able to say, well, I, I've, I've read a balance sheet. Well, it's good for you. Um, now, but you don't really need that. What you need is people to understand where the money flows are going. What's happening with the money that we're taking in? Most of it's completely, I can't see it anymore. Once upon yeah. a time, I used to have to count it at the end of a shift. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. I can't see it anymore, but we want to know where the money's coming. We need to know what the margins are. We need to know at what point are we selling a product which is actually we're making a margin on so it pays my salary or am I selling a product in such a way that actually I don't have any money left to pay my salary. Mm. So, you know, it's understanding really the way that the operation works, not just from an operational point of view, but also from a, from a financial point of view. What is it that's key in there? And that's where things like ultimately revenue management and so on all have a role to play but so we're looking for those so what we're looking for in the individual is good communication skills we're looking for you know, like the personal characteristics of honesty truthfulness we're looking for characteristics that resonate with our business that there is a good match between what we're offering and what um, they are offering and that we have shared values that those shared values so um, I'm not looking for necessarily I wouldn't necessarily be looking for high order skills in terms of analytical skills at this stage because I think people learn a lot of that through oh, – oh, the other thing, sorry, one other thing I think is very important to mention. I'm also looking for a sense of curiosity. I want them to be aware of the environment that they're in. What is it? And can I spot things? Do I know things are happening over here or what, what's happening over there? Because I need to have – that almost 360-degree vision about what's going on around me because of the complexity of the businesses that we're operating in. 
Um, and that often is overlooked. People don't fully appreciate just how important that is. And I see that as perhaps being part of communication. It's the ability to watch, to listen, to observe as part of that overall communication. And when you see something that's not doesn't seem to be right or going wrong, you've got to be prepared to intervene and fix it. Yeah. So I'm not looking for – well, I am with chefs. I'm looking for highly developed skills in the sense – and I'm looking for good professional food and beverage service skills if I can get them. But if I can't, then I, I know that if, if the person's got the right attitude, they've got the right sort of commitment, then a lot of that we can actually help to develop over time. And also you're involved with the Savoy Educational Trust as well. Yes, that's a different role altogether. I'm yeah. a trustee of the Savoy Educational Trust. Um, I have been not that long, actually. I think it's probably coming up for six months. But the Savoy Educational Trust is what it says it is. It's an educational trust, and it uh, is a grant-awarding organisation, and it makes grants um, available to largely charities, other charities or charitable organisations, um, uh, not-for-profit organisations, colleges and schools, universities, in order to help to develop and foster hospitality education and training. So that's all we do, really. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting, though. You're enjoying it? Oh, yes. It's very interesting because um, unlike my responsibilities with Crumbs, where I said we don't get any public money, we have to go out and we have to you like raise the money that we're actually going to spend on our trainees um the the advantage the savoy educational trust has is it has money yeah. it's a grant giving organization as, as opposed to a, a a fund raising organization yeah. so that's a slightly different well it is a very different sort of perspective but it's also nicely balancing you know yeah. having to try and raise money over here for this organization and this one looking at things in terms of, well, if we gave them that, just what sort of impact could that have? How could that really improve not only the not only the lives of the individuals, but how could we improve the industry? And then you're still uh, keeping your hand in the universities at Kathmandu? Yes, yes. I just, in fact, I did a, I did a, a webinar for them at uh, 8.15 this morning because um, it was only one o'clock their time. But, <laughs> yes, uh, what we've been doing there, which is quite interesting work, is I helped them to develop a program which is very much – which is very different from sort of standard programs that you find in most European and American institutions – because it's called a Bachelor of Professional Hospitality and it's and it's an integrated program between industry and education. Mm -hmm. And so part of that, it's an experiential program mm -hmm. where they're gaining the experience of working in the industry and then that gets related back to understanding the theory. And then the, so the theory is in support of their professional practice and their professional experience, as opposed to saying you've learned this for the first two years and then we'll send you out. And once you're out there, then then we'll, you might make sense of what we taught you. So we've it's been designed in such a way that that experiential element is so very important to what's taking place. And it's interesting that somewhere like Nepal has been – very open to embrace that sort of idea and structure. Um, and they don't seem to have too many preconceptions about what 
what these things need to look like. So they're much more open to understanding that uh, intellectual development, it does, doesn't happen in isolation. Yeah. It's actually happening in the context of their experiences, which are in the context of their professional competency and their professional practice. Now, there's nothing unique about that idea because we've been doing it with medicine, religion, theology. Yeah. We've been doing it with in them, perhaps not to quite the same extent with law. But if you look at the way that we've been, we, we, we've always, we talk about training doctors. Yeah. We don't talk about educating doctors. We talk about training doctors. Mm -hmm. um, but we, we seem to think that hospitality is much more of an academic discipline than it is an actual practical discipline. Mm. And what this is doing is actually turning that, inverting that idea and saying it's got to be about experiential learning. Yeah. You learn from your experiences and you've got to create the experience in which they're going to learn. So it's not just unstructured, off you go, and then we'll see what happens at the end of it. There's quite a lot of structure to that. But it's relating that so that they understand the underpinning knowledge that makes them better at doing what they're actually doing. So there's a lot of intellectual development taking place in there as well. And they've been very open to this idea Um and it's an idea that we did we did actually use when we created the Edge Hotel School. So that idea is not new in that sense, but it's they've taken it to a different in a different direction at a different level. And they've also now part of why that's so interesting and really quite satisfying to be engaged in is that they're doing that through they're beginning to do that throughout Nepal even though it's Kathmandu University. Because one of the things that you will appreciate, you know, Nepal is very much a tourist destination. They rely quite heavily in terms of their economy on tourism. Mm. But it's about how do you improve the standard of that across the country? And it's a very diverse country. It's very difficult. The communications are quite difficult across the country and so on. So you can't naturally always expect that students are going to come to you in Kathmandu. Many of them are quite in, in rural communities. They, they won't have a lot of money available to them. So what we're doing with that program is that we're helping individual colleges which exist already in these rural communities and we're giving them the tools and the resources uh, and the university is, is in effect managing the program in a number of different partners industry partners but also different college partners mm. so that it's trying to reach parts of, of nepal that other typical types of programs wouldn't do where you have an expectation the students are going to come to you what we're now saying is if it, the students are in a regional area and we have a college that can support what you're doing then We'll go. We, it's not we'll go to you, but you know you will have access to exactly the same education as if you were in Nepal, uh, in Kathmandu. That's really smart. And just on a typical English or American hospitality management degree, I mean, how would that break down roughly in subjects? You know, how how what, what was the oh, format? It's there is no. Everyone tends to be slightly different, but uh -huh. they all tend to conform to a pretty standard model. And one of the things that's happened over the years is that often 
where they were previously hospitality schools or hospitality departments, especially in universities, they've been amalgamated or merged into business schools. And what you end up with is a business school structure. Mm. So somebody doing hospitality will probably do six modules or six units um, per level, three levels. Out of those six units, they will do four at least, which will be standard business type school units, which will be delivered often across the business school, finance, HR, bit of strategy, bit of something else. And there might be two, if you're lucky, and that isn't always the case, that could be, if you like, contextualised or subject specific. My issues with those are that they become a much more academic business programme and they lack that professional outcomes. Now, again, I'll give you an example of that. We asked the question in our e-hotelier survey in relation to education and training, and one of the findings that we got back from the industry was that they don't believe that hotel schools, colleges, and universities are providing sufficient professional training for their students. So their students are disadvantaged when they go into the workforce. Mm-hmm. That they think they've got a hospitality degree. They think they know what hospitality is all about. And um, as a result of that, then they become, they realize very quickly they don't, and they don't have the professional skill sets to be able to, what I would refer to, hit the ground running. And the problem with that that then incurs is that they think, whoa, hang on, you know, I didn't join up for this. Why are you expecting me to do this? I'm a manager. But you, coming back to my earlier point, you can't actually manage these damn things unless you've rolled your sleeves up and understand all, how all they work. And so there are clearly issues about that. The industry recognises that there is insufficient professional development content taking place in the average courses these days. And it's become marginalised. I did it. I did a thing 2014, that's a long time ago now, called the homogenization of hospitality. And that was all about the fact that it's become really, it's almost indistinguishable. One course is not really different from another. And they've all got this sort of strong, you could argue it's a good, strong business foundation, but it's not an operational foundation. It's not grounded in the industry. Is grounded in generic business, which is not grounding it at all. Um, So there's clearly issues related to that. Um, And I don't see there's there's no simple solution to that uh, because, unfortunately, the external pressures on institutions are such that gives them that degree of conformity to a standard type of model. You've got, you know, you've got restrictions in terms of the way that the university devises its academic frameworks, its policies and procedures, all of which have a tendency to marginalise that. And in many cases now, you'll find that instead of doing what in my day used to be four-year courses, two years in, one year in industry, one year back in the institution at undergraduate level, many of them have lost the placement. It's an optional extra. You can do it if you like, but it doesn't matter if you don't. So if you don't do it, how do you know what the industry is all about? How do you know how the industry ticks? How do you make it work? How do you, you can't, you can't provide that experience any other way. The only way that you can provide the experience is by using your hands. And I try and make that analogy that, you know, if you want to be a master craftsman at anything, 
then the only way you become a master craftsman is actually by practice, yeah. by actually, you know, if, you, if you're a potter, for example, you know, you've got to know the, the different forms of clay that you can use for different types of pots. You've got to be able to understand what the shapes that you can form. All of that requires you to use your hands. And what I, I think that we've lost is we've lost that understanding that you really do need to understand how the business works through getting your hands dirty now you know it's easy to say that and it's quite trite but it's very very true um and unfortunately it's this this academic drift that's taken us in that other direction is not not doing in my view it's not doing any of the stakeholders any good it's not doing the students any good it's not doing the industry any good and ultimately it's not doing the university any good either yeah. And well, the good news is you can go to EU Hotelier or um, Institute Hospitality and get Or um, you could go to the Edge Hotel School, which yeah. does it, or you can go to Kathmandu. The choices <laughs> are endless. You can get some relevant experience. Well, listen, yeah. I was going to ask you a couple of fun questions before you go, if that was okay. Um, yeah, sure. Because I'm, I'm looking at time as well, and I know you're, you're busy. Um, so we have a wee thing called Market of Ten, and we just ask some questions about your favourite things. So, favourite city to eat in? Um, favourite city to eat in, Bath. Ah, interesting. Why is that? They seem to have quite a big variety of independents. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I like to, I mean, yes, of course, we will go and use some of the chain operations, some of the ones where you've got that real consistency of standard and so on. But it's also having the opportunity to find independents. Mm -hmm. And they've got quite a big broad variety of independent operations in Bath, both in terms of hotels, but in terms of also in terms of restaurants. So it's it's really that choice through the, and the independence that some of them are slightly quirky and it's giving you a completely different type of uh, hospitality experience, really. Nice. Uh, Favourite hotel? Uh, that's tricky. I could say the last one I stayed in, mm, but if I'm my favourite hotel in terms of location, quality of service, um, and general ambience was in Doha. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was an M gallery property, and it overlooked the entrance to the souk, and, uh, and we had a balcony. So I could sit on the balcony and watch the comings and goings and oh, the, the, um, the camel-mounted police <laughs> marching through the market. So it's really – and the favourite hotel has got so many different bits around it. It's yeah. and, and that one was just that it was there was something slightly magical about the experience there. That, that sounds a, incredible. Um, favourite coffee shop? Don't really have one to be honest. Yeah, uh, any, anything that's independent, anything that serves really good coffee. Yeah, and favourite bar or pub? No, none. Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. Yeah, the favourite pub is is a fairly local pub here, uh, which is um, it's a chain pub, but they do quite good grub there. Nice. Uh, it's a Marston's operation. Very good. Yeah, but you know, it's it's fine, and and again, it's because the nature of the location, the ambience, and the fact that again, it's consistency of standard. You know, you know that when you go, a you're going to get a good pint, and b you, the the food offer is. It's consistent and it's quite imaginative as well. So yeah. they've obviously worked quite hard at. 
And you got a favourite tipple when you're there? Um, no. <laughs> Again, I'm I'm a, a great one for looking at what's on that week, what the specials might be, yep. what the differences might be, and um, you know, going with different ones so you get different experiences. Nice. And then, lastly, favourite restaurant. Uh, I have to say this, and it is Steins. Oh yeah, very good. And and not only because obviously it's relatively close to where we live, but we have that relationship with them. But there's also something about what they do and how they do it. They don't they're not pretentious. Yes, it's white tablecloths, and yes, you know, it's it's a bit it's not it's not ultra fine dining, yeah. and you can get it at different sort of levels depending upon what's available, but. For me, it's also about what the culture that that place also creates and the ambience that they create. And it's that's hard work, and I know that, but that's to do with the people that are there. So from a, a regular point of view, you know, Steins would be definitely the place of choice. Fantastic. And then last thing, what's next for you? What's next on the horizon? Oh, it's a good question, actually. Um not much. It, well, there's a lot, obviously. There's a lot because I've got a lot going on. But I think the next thing for us is we're going off to France um, at the beginning of uh, late late April, May, because we have a son, daughter-in-law and a grandson who live in, in the Alps in the Savoie and have really? done for the last 16 years. We don't see them very often, oh. so it's the opportunity to go. And they bought a new house some time ago, and my son's been renovating and doing it up, and it's actually seeing, which I know will be really very, very good indeed, but it's seeing them and actually creating the opportunity to spend some family time with part of the family that we only see probably once a year. Lovely. Great. Well, I love you and leave you. Thank you so much yeah. for spending time. That, that's been amazing. It's been so helpful. And um, yeah, I'm so glad that we met and I'm, I'll hopefully stay in touch and we can yeah, okay. try and crack this hospitality recruitment problem together. <laughs> <laughs> I wish we could. <laughs> All we right. could become multimillionaires overnight. <laughs> we could find the magic solution. <laughs> yes, Rodney. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Thanks okay. so much, Professor. Take care. Cheers. Thank you very much. So there we go. That could have went on for hours. I thought Professor Peter was just unbelievable to listen to. I'm sure there'll be a part two and a part three and a part four. And I'm really looking forward to actually working with him on a few things if we can. And definitely getting much more of his advice on hospitality rising and what we can do just to be a more attractive proposition for everyone that might want to join hospitality. So a massive, massive thank you to my guest today, Professor Peter Jones. This podcast is sponsored by Vita Mojo, the all-in-one restaurant management platform helping operators grow ATV, reduce tech complexity and serve guests better. Just visit vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic and get in touch with the team right away. That's vitamojo.com forward slash supersonic. Thanks also to our silver partners, HDI, Save by Robots, 
and Airship and Toggle for their support as this podcast would not be possible without all of our partners. So this is me, Mark McSee, signing off for another podcast and I'm really looking forward to the next time we're together. Next time we'll hear from many, many more interesting people with top tips, tricks and tales that will make your brand boom. Boom.